Hello and welcome to Just Access. In this podcast series, we talk to some fascinating people, legal experts, academics, and human rights advocates, where we explore ideas about the future of human rights and improving access to justice for all. I'm Dr. Miranda Melcher, a senior legal fellow at Just Access. And over the next two episodes, I talk to Nani Janssen Ravenlau, who is an award-winning human rights lawyer specializing in strategic litigation at the intersection of human rights, social justice, and technology. In this first episode, we focus on her background and the organization she's founded called Systemic Justice and the work that she and her organization do. In the second episode, we talk more about digital rights more broadly, about how the legal system works, some of the biggest gaps for justice she's identified, and some possible solutions. To start off with, can you walk us through how you came to work in human rights and human rights law? How I came to work in human rights and human rights law, I think that it's not as linear as it sometimes seems when you look at my CV. I did uh, discover when I was in law school, very early on when I started, and, and that in and of itself was a bit of a journey because I started out studying to be a dentist first and then <laughs> quits in my second year. And anyway, I ended up in law school, which is, was for me the right place to be. But I think in my first months there, I, I had an introduction to uh, public international law which just really sparked a huge interest with me. And that made me decide to, besides degree in Dutch civil law that I was following at the time, to also take on a master's degree on international and European law. And so I ended up doing both, but it was clear that I was much, much more interested in the public international law side of things and in the human rights aspects in particular. I then actually did a master's on that front at Columbia Law School, at LLM. I thought I hadn't learned enough after law school in the Netherlands. And actually, when I started doing my master's, I was like, oh, maybe I did. <laughs> but after that, I really tried to find work in human rights immediately. And that was really hard. Now, knowing what I know now, I completely understand why people would look for someone who has a bit more of uh, experience, even though I worked all the way through law school in order to pay for it. I didn't really practice, obviously, as a lawyer, even though I ended up working at law firms at some stage, also as a researcher. And so, so I ended up following the advice of a friend of mine who worked at the UN legal department, who basically said, do you feel that you can hit the round, the ground running in, in a role like that? Because I was looking at human rights roles. And that made me realize that I probably couldn't. <laughs> and he really recommended that I train at a law firm first, to really learn how to be a proper lawyer, build skills, learn how to really apply the law in practice, which I did. Can't say that I thoroughly enjoyed the experience as such. Law firm life really wasn't my kind of culture, but it did help me properly understand how to approach litigation work, how to build a case file, how to look at evidence, legal argumentation, and so on. And the moment that I completed my training, I made my escape. So I applied for a couple of roles and was very lucky to end up working for an NGO in London that works worldwide to defend journalists called Media Defense. And this is where I really got to put the two together, the theoretical background on the human rights law, international, public international law, and the practical experience that I gained at the law firm. 
and that kind of sparked all of the other work that followed afterwards because I discovered strategic litigation as a tool for change and so on. But that's where it really all started coming together. Thank you for that background. I think it is really helpful to hear those different pieces were necessary. There's so often this idea of, oh, there is a perfect degree out there. And if I go and do that, kind of, I've ticked all the boxes at once. And actually, as you've just shared with us, it's not that simple. It's this over here and that over there, and they all come together. So that's really helpful to understand. And obviously really interesting to then think about how that led to your current work. So can you please introduce us to your brainchild? Introduce it to us and kind of, I guess, the backstory. How did you found this? What do you do? Yeah. So that would be Systemic Justice, uh, which is the organization that I've been working on building for the past uh, two years. We are the first Black-led, majority Black people of color organization in Europe that works on strategic litigation for racial, social and economic justice. Um, Strategic litigation, I just mentioned that is one of the things that, yeah, I got acquainted with in the context of my work defending journalists around the world. So that is like a recurring thread ever since in the work that I've done. After leaving uh, Media Defense, I spent a year uh, at Harvard at the Brooklyn Klein Center to really look at strategic litigation and particularly how you could get people uh, from different disciplines to work together around strategic cases. So how can you get lawyers to work together with activists, with academics, with uh, technical experts to really bring about the biggest um, impact uh, in a case? So it's really about collaboration. And following that, I got the opportunity to uh, set up the Digital Freedom Fund, which is the first organization that I uh, founded and built, which supports strategic litigation on digital rights. So human rights in a digital context in Europe. And I think it's basically all of those different experiences combined, working as a litigator, um, like getting a very close up look on how the law can both bring about huge change, but also how it can sometimes be difficult for people to actually use that system to their advantage, but also seeing as a re-grantor, because that's what we essentially were with Digital Freedom Fund, how lawyers approached strategic litigation projects. And that became increasingly difficult for me to see. I should mention there also that another factor played into it as well, which was the decolonizing work that I initiated when I was at DFF. I very quickly noticed when I just started that work that when we were having conversations about human rights in the digital context in Europe, that those conversations tended to be held by white, middle-class, non-disabled, et cetera, people, mostly men also quite often, and that they were not very reflective of the society uh, that we live in. So that meant that we after actually getting a little bit annoyed with the fact that a lot of talk <laughs> was being had about like how to change these things, but not a lot of action was undertaken, decided to do something about it and, and initiate a process to really address these structural issues within the digital rights ecosystem. And that meant that we ended up connecting with a lot of organizations and movements and collectives across the region that were working on racial, social and economic justice to really see how would digital rights fit into their work. And yeah, Seeing in that process, like what a huge divide there was and also understanding more and more what a huge disconnect there was quite often between lawyers and litigating organizations and communities that were doing resistance work. And that in combination with seeing the what I increasingly began to consider an extractive dynamic between litigating organizations and communities 
We saw lawyers swooping in when an issue got a digital rights aspect to it, in spite of work having been done for decades by communities to resist certain manifestations of, of systemic injustice, and then just run off with the case, essentially, and claiming victory and leaving all of that groundwork that had been done and the, and the communities who should have been in charge uh, behind. And that made me think and yeah, talk <laughs> to uh, co-conspirators about this and really think, okay, we should be able to build something that works in a different way to make sure that communities are really leading on the cases that concern them, that they're able to set the agenda, that they're able to set the strategy and that they really remain in their power throughout. So that is what we're trying to build with systemic justice. It's a new model of community-driven litigation. It builds on best practices from movement lawyering, et cetera, but it's slightly different in the sense that it really is uh, intended to make sure that communities themselves are in the lead in the cases that concern them. And the middle part there basically is for us to work with community partners to develop litigation projects that can help further their campaigns for change. But we're also doing work to build their knowledge and power more generally about strategic litigation. What can it do for their campaigns for change? What are the, the possibilities? What are the limitations? We just launched a, a toolkit, a, a community toolkit, for example, that includes a, a guide um, that actually takes people through the different ways in which litigation can really help make a difference in racial, social and economic justice cases. There's a, a legal lexicon, so there's like an explainer of complicated legal terms in normal human speak, which I think I sometimes also can use. <laughs> and then there's also a conversation starter that if communities are interested in exploring litigation, to have an idea of what are the things they can think about and discuss with each other. And then the uh, other pillar of our work is uh, a community of practice. We may be the first uh, Black-led, majority Black people of color organization in Europe working on strategic litigation, but there are lots and lots of other organizations working on all different sorts of issues through litigation as a tool, on climate, for example, on Roma rights, on labor rights, all sorts of different things. And a lot of them are very interested in working in a more community-centered way, but also feel it would be helpful to be able to share best practices with other litigators in a space that's safe for them to do. So that's something else that we're facilitating, those exchanges and those learnings between different practitioners uh, across the region. So this is obviously why we have you here. It's brilliant, <laughs> the work that you and your team are doing and the whole sort of how it developed, how it all links together is fabulous. So thank you very much for sharing that with us. Obviously, in the sort of latter half of that answer, the amount of work that you're doing on on the multiple different pillars, there's a lot going on here. So if we move from the why and the big picture what, practically speaking, what does your role involve on a day-to-day -day basis? What do I do on a day-to-day -day basis? So I guess it's my role to make sure that we stay on course in pursuing our mission, which is to make sure that communities can take litigation on their own terms in their campaigns for change. That means building a fabulous team. We are now uh, a group of 10. Uh, we hope to grow a little bit further in the new year, but then I think we're at a sufficient strength to be doing the work in a sustainable way. So it's actually making sure that all the practical things align with the mission and with the vision that we have for the change that we want to bring about. And that could mean very different things on any given day. Sometimes it can mean having conversations like this or delivering a keynote, or it could be being in case development meetings with community partners where we're strategizing about 
who are the different stakeholders that should be influenced in order to bring about the change and therefore what are the potential litigation strategies that could go with that. It could be looking at really practical things such as all the nuts and bolts that are very unattractive but important like our IT security <laughs> and our case management system and things like that. So it, it varies a lot and also, obviously, as the team expands and there are more people to take on dedicated roles, there will be more differentiation as to what everyone does. But I guess in the end of the day, my main job is making sure that it all like fits together uh, and that we have also, again, together with the team members, that we make sure that we have the right processes in place to make sure that we all know what everyone else is doing and we can make sure that, yeah, we do the best we can in delivering what we want to deliver for our community partners. I imagine you don't have quiet days, given all of that. <laughs> I would almost say guilty as charged, but I'm becoming a little bit better at actually making sure I have some sort of a weekend. <laughs> oh, yeah, because yeah, you need yeah. to like so, sleep and recharge to be able to yeah. do all of this. Yeah, no, that's good. Exactly. <laughs> Earlier, you mentioned a few, obviously the pillars and the overall mission, but also a few kind of specific projects. Obviously, my favorite is the lexicon of explaining legal terms in, as you said, human speak. This is incredibly important. <laughs> there are a lot of legal terms and they don't relate to human speak directly. But are there any other either current projects or kind of upcoming projects that you'd particularly like to highlight or explain? Oh, yeah, there's two that I would mention here. So one is the work that builds on the community consultation process that we started our work with. As I mentioned, we work on racial, social and economic justice. We also work on those issues across the digital and non-digital spectrum, building a bit further on the approach that we had at the Digital Freedom Fund, where we said digital rights are human rights. So all human rights in the digital context should be considered as digital rights. Moving away from the more narrow perspective that you had traditionally of privacy online, data protection and free speech online. Instead, we're just saying, okay, this fiction of a separation between digital and non-digital, we need to really do away with that and also do away with like tech-centered narratives and acknowledge that these things exist in a continuum and the way that oppression manifests itself digitally or non-digitally, doesn't really matter. The root causes are the same. So that is an awful lot of potential work that you could be doing. So what we wanted to make sure is that we focused our attention on those issues that were most urgent, according to communities. So we uh, engaged in a really extensive community consultation process early last year, which uh, consisted of my having a lot of one-on-one -on -one conversations with people. Uh, I had about 100 we also had about uh, 100 submissions to a needs assessment form that we had open. We had six roundtable conversations to look at different themes. And so we explored climate justice, access to justice, social protection, policing, free movement and anti-racism. Each of these conversations with activists from all over the region to see what were the issues that they were firefighting on a daily basis, what are the potential for change that they saw, and what are the opportunities for action that they also saw. And we also mapped over a thousand organizations, movements and collectives across the region that were working on racial, social and economic justice. And alongside that, we mapped the legal landscape to see what litigation work was already taking place. And when we put those two together, we ended up with climate justice and social protection as our priority areas. Climate justice really for us is the intersection of the, the fallout of the climate crisis with racial, social and economic justice. And social protection is housing, healthcare, education, 
basically any area in which governments should be providing access to essential services, but is doing less and less, particularly when it comes to certain groups who are basically left to fall through the safety net. Um, this was quite an exercise. It actually is something that kind of mushroomed out of conversation that we had with our head of research before we even formally existed. Oh, yeah, we should talk to some people, we should consult them. And that kind of became this whole big enterprise. Um, and we also published the findings of that, right? Because uh, it was really clear also for the people who participated that they wanted to make sure that this which is a one of a kind, like really community view of resistance and also priorities and opportunities for change uh, that they wanted to make sure that was out there in the world. So we published that in September last year, but also saw that there were certain things that we didn't get as clearly from the information that we had collected. One of those actually was the role that technology plays in the oppression that communities are resisting. So this is something that we're digging into a little bit more deeply now. And we also really work to expand on the regional coverage, if I can put it that way, because we looked at all of the Council of Europe, but we saw that certain regions were just sub-regions, just more presented than others. So we really made an effort to get more information on those uh, parts of Europe, which means that now we have a data set of 3,000 organizations, movements and collectives across the region. Um, and uh, we're engaging in deeper interviews with around 50 different activists, which will give us an enhanced picture, basically, that will build on what we did last year. This will come out in June. We'll also have a lot more time then to really properly work on data visualization, to really make sure that it can be accessible and very usable for people for their own campaigns. So that is something to uh, be on the lookout for. And uh, we'll, we'll, we'll obviously announce all of this, but uh, it will be June uh, 2024. And the other project I want to highlight is something that actually came out of all of these roundtable conversations and the conversation that we also had with community partners subsequently about climate justice and, and building potential casework around there. And that was that there was very clearly um, a sentiment amongst Black, Indigenous, people of color led climate justice organizations and movements that basically their narrative is being pushed out of the frame at the moment when you look at the climate debate in Europe, which is very much a climate debate, very focused on carbon emissions, corporate accountability, technical solutions, but not the realities that community partners are living. For example, one of the participants in our climate justice roundtable was Rosamund Kisi Debra, who is a clean air activist because her daughter Ella, 10 years ago, died of air pollution. Those are the lived realities of racialized and marginalized communities. And those are the things that we think uh, there should be a lot more attention for at the moment. So what we're doing is basically we set up an initiative to build the power of people-led climate justice uh, movements. Um, and that comprises a, a speaker series, which we launched uh, last month at, at the OBI conference in Berlin, which will be continued uh, online for the coming months, be six installments in total, where we're really digging into, yeah, the, like the deeper conversations about what does eco-gentrification uh, and climate justice have to do with each other? How does race play into all of this, etc.? We are talking to uh, a partner to develop a podcast series as well for people who are interested in climate, but don't know that much about climate justice. How can we make sure that they actually yeah, are taken into that work and better understand what the dimensions are and that the conversation hopefully will expand uh, as a result of that? And last but definitely not least, we're organizing a, a climate justice summit in April of this coming year where we hope to bring together 30 people climate justice activists from around the region 
to strategize, to learn from each other, but also really, yeah, articulate this positive vision for climate justice that people have, but quite often don't have the space for because they're busy firefighting and basically fighting for survival. But we do have ideas <laughs> on how we can do things differently. So those would be the two other projects that I would highlight at this stage. Brilliant. Lots to look forward to. Um, thank you for highlighting them for us. Uh, some amount of your work, at least, obviously not all of it, is focused on digital rights. And I'm wondering if I can ask you a little bit about that. There's obviously a number of things that need to be reconceptualized, that the law needs to change, that we need to rethink. There's a lot of changes that are needed in this space. But specifically, if we bring the ethos and mission of your organization, Systemic Justice, to it, what then does it mean to decolonize digital rights? So the decolonizing uh, work that I initiated and which is wonderfully followed up on at the moment in the, the Weaving Liberation Project, it's yeah wonderfully taken up on a life of its own, which is really great to see, was really intended to address the power structures uh, that are in place. And in that particular case, really to look at the power structures of the digital rights field. Uh, so not so much the entire world, right? Because there's many different actors <laughs> that need to be addressed if we're really going to be tackling the issues with, with digital rights at the moment. That includes the tech companies, it includes government, it includes regulators, international bodies, etc. But that work was really focused on um, making sure that the field that's supposed to be the watchdog actually also made structural changes. And that means looking at things beyond just thinking that it's a pipeline problem, because that's often a go-to response, right? Oh, we just need to bring in more people with different kinds of lived experience and that will just solve everything without really considering what are the kinds of organizations that they would then be working in? What is the fighting that we'd have to do internally in order to actually start shifting the debate? So that was and, and still continues to be the work of uh, the decolonizing work at DFF and, and now Weaving Liberation Initiative. The way that we look at it is really like trying to make clear, and I think that the upcoming report will be very illustrative of that, that the way that policymakers, uh, big NGOs, um, governments, tech companies speak about technology is not the way that communities actually experience it. So the, the, there's a disconnect there, even in the conceptualization of what technology is and how it plays out in people's day-to-day -day reality. And there's a really clear like divide <laughs> that needs to be bridged there in order for us to get to places where we actually can formulate meaningful solutions to these challenges, because we're actually speaking a completely different language uh, at the moment. One of the things that we're trying to do, at least from the way that we approach the work and the way that we talk about it is, as I just mentioned, like trying to move away from this kind of like tech-centered narrative and actually really saying, listen, it's very nice that we talk about digital and non-digital, it's all connected. For our community partners, it really doesn't make much of a difference if they are being targeted by a racist predictive policing algorithm or if they're being stopped on the street corner and asked for that ID by someone who's racially profiling them in person. It all comes down to the same root causes. And that is what we're trying to address with the work that we're doing. That makes a lot of sense, given that community focus. It's a problems thing that the, the goal is to address.
Thank you, Nani, for introducing us to systemic justice and your own background and exploring the work that you're doing with us. In our next episode, we will look more and discuss more about digital rights and many other gaps in the access to justice system and explore possible solutions.